Happy New Year as we are back for another baseball season. My name is Brandon Ward, and you're listening to That 90s Baseball Pod, powered by Access Twins. And we're going to dive right in because we've got a tight schedule today. It is, though, opening day. Oli, any opening day memories as I bring you into the show? Uh, I mean, just the, the memory of my first opening day in Baltimore, where <clears throat> as of the day before, within 24 hours, I was looking around going, is my suitca- are my suitcases packing going to Rochester? Because we had, uh, I think we had 26 guys on the roster and somebody had to go up to go up to Rochester. So I was peeking around, looking around the room, making sure that my suitcases weren't the ones that were in my locker getting packed up. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a good thing for you and it, it didn't happen. And joining us this week, a, a name that will be familiar to a lot of people from my neck of the woods and a guy who caught you for a half minute there, Mr. Terry Steinbach. Terry, how are we doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, you bet. We are not only coming to you via all the podcast platforms that you listen, but on YouTube as well. So you get to see my face and these other wonderful gentlemen's faces. But yeah, uh, Terry, I ought to ask you the same thing. Any uh, any good opening day memories you have? Yeah, I, I, you know, I agree with Greg, you know, that making that first uh, memorable opening day is is, you know, for any athlete is is a non forgettable moment. However, uh, being a northern climate guy, I do remember us opening up in Milwaukee at County Stadium. Uh, we started the game at like 33, 34 degrees. I think we ended the game at 30 degrees, and the next three days were canceled because of snow. <laughs> it was so cold. <laughs> well, being a, being a Minnesota guy, what's the coldest game you can ever remember playing in in your entire life? Because for my senior season, we went and scrimmaged a town about 25 miles over, and it was 28 degrees at first pitch. So I can definitely remember I, I got like a 3-1 count and I smoked a grounder back at the pitcher. And my hands might still be ringing to this point almost 20 years later. But 28 degrees is my record. What say you? I would probably say that Milwaukee one was bad. You know, and, and again, usually when the temperature is that cold, it's not sunny. It's usually windy. It's overcast. So, so you're getting no heat whatsoever. And, and, and. Ole can remember this. We, you know, in Milwaukee at the visiting dugout, we didn't have heaters. You know, you had to run in to try to warm up, you know, and stuff like yeah. that. It was back in the day. You just, you just sucked it up and, and, you know, trying to make the best of a deal. Yeah. I mean, as many layers as you can put on and, and still function properly as a human being, but it was, uh, I had my, at my senior year, the first game I was pitching, it snowed and it was snowing on us. And it was like, I'm not going anywhere in the Midwest. <laughs> <laughs> but but you do remember you were all jacked up just to play. You know oh yeah, I mean? no, I was, and and, and it, it was training. Was, and I can't wait to get out to opening day. Let's get let's get off to a good start. You know, kind of no matter what the temperature was. Yeah, yeah, well, no. Well, Terry, right. I know you you just celebrated a monumentous birthday. We won't share. People can go look at your baseball card if they want to know what number that is, but what's keeping you busy lately? You're not, you're not far down the road from me. I'm in St. Michael, Minnesota. So you're probably no more than uh, an hour away based on where you're at right now. I would say. I am much closer to you than that. We actually have a house in Rogers. And so we are in St. Michael. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's keeping me busy. We have our first granddaughter. She's uh, 15 months. Uh, We get, we babysit her whenever, every chance we get. Uh, My three kids are still in the Metro area. So we spend time getting together with them, 
uh my activities love the outdoors i have a hunter so don't ever try to do a podcast from september through december because that'll be a hard no yeah <laughs> yep. um yeah i spent a lot of time then we have a, a a lake home here just west of the cities out in annandale and so my wife and i and family and friends we are probably out here six days a week oh, uh wow. just enjoying lake life you know pontooning water stuff like that fishing a little bit but yeah just 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 enjoying and relaxing yeah, we know Annandale well. That's where my wife bought her Chevy Blazer like the day before COVID hit. So really, really great time to buy yourself a car. Let me just um, put in a plug for buying cars right before impending pandemics. I have to ask you, because am I imagining this or did this really happen that you and your family in Sports Illustrated had a picture of you guys in a hot tub when you signed with the Minnesota Twins? Yeah, well, yeah, that was a picture that we had in a, uh, the first house that we owned. We, we we had a hot tub in the, there was a walkout. So in the lower level, mm -hmm. we had a hot tub that was kind of built in. Yeah. And so when mm -hmm. we did sign with the twins, that was one of the pictures uh, Sports Illustrated used. Well, I was, I was 11 at the time. So the thing is, <laughs> I read those things cover to cover and not knowing you know, how my, my life and career path would go. It's kind of cool to be talking to you now after being a kid doing that. Um, let's go back to the beginning though. Cleveland takes you in the 1980 draft. Was there ever a chance you were signing with them? Well, you know, you got to explain that a little bit because back in 1980, we didn't have internet. We didn't have podcasts. We, yeah. To be quite honest with you, I had no idea that I was going to get drafted. I mean, we're just playing in New Ulm, you know, small town ball. We're, we're having the time of our life. We're, we're playing ball. We had some good teams. And in, in 78, we went to the American Legion World Series, you know, with that same group of guys. Yeah, there's scouts out there. But, you know, I was one of the younger guys playing with my brother and older, older teammates. So I thought if scouts were there, oh, they're not looking at me. You know, they're looking at the other guys. So to be honest with you, I was in draft day came and, you know, it wasn't like, I was sitting by the phone or anything. All of a sudden you get a phone call like, holy cow, I was drafted. I, I guess I got to, to be honest with you, take this baseball thing kind of serious, you know? Um, but uh, I, I did not, uh, you know, again, back then I had a, a full ride to go to the University of Minnesota. And if you just economically uh, what the Indians offered, which was perfectly in the realm of when I was drafted. So I'm not going to say the Indians were cheap. No, they weren't. They, they were right there where, where they should have been. But I just uh, chose to uh, go to college for the three years and, and, and better your skills and better your experiences. Now, if, if my research was good, and that's not always a, a foregone conclusion, your second year at Minnesota would have been the first year under John Anderson. Is that correct? You are correct. And so that connection to the, the university still exists at this point. What was your relationship like with him? And what was it like? I mean, you were recruited most likely by the previous, the predecessor, um, you know, what was that transition like for you? Yeah. Uh, George Thomas was the yep. predecessor, a 10, 12 year major league career that he had. And uh, so my first year was with him and John. And then the second year was, was with John. And you, you know, the relationship was good. Um, if you go back and, and, and check that year, um, one of the youngest head D one coaches, I think ever to be hired. Um, we had good talent on the team. And, and Ole could probably relate to this. We, we, our fault, we played like crap. It had nothing to do with John. I mean, we just, you know, that first half of, of, of the season was, was just terrible. And rumor was, oh, you made a mistake. They shouldn't have hired John. Can't control the players. <laughs> players aren't doing well. And literally, the players looked at each other and said, hey, come on. And, you know, enough 
screwing around, you know, and we got ourselves into the Big Ten tournament and we ended up, you know, the Big Ten that year. And, you know, it's what a tribute to, 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 you know, for his first year to go ahead and win the Big Ten tourney. And, you know, the rest of history, I think he's in his, what, 43rd year, 40th something year. Like that, yeah. Something way high, yeah. And he's just done a fantastic job with that program. Now, before I let Greg in here, if I'm not mistaken, you've been teammates with both baseball Greg Olsons at some level, right? I have. The Greg Olson from Edina and then yes. the Greg Olson pitcher. <laughs> so you've gotten the full Greg Olson experience. I don't know if you're ever going to be teammates with uh, the former NFL tight end that our podcast partner here gets mistaken for every now and then but so far you've run the gamut what do you got Oli? no brother looking uh i mean thoroughly impressive career i want uh i wanted to go i mean we got to go to 88 all-star mvp yeah um it was interesting kind of going through the wikipedia stuff because i you know i got i got there in 89 so didn't hear all the stuff but it was kicking around that you shouldn't have been at the all-star game and then you ended up dialing it up. You di- ended up dialing it up the second half, and I had obviously, you know, All Star MVP. But um, what? Uh, just tell me about the All Star game. Well, the you, you know the whole situation back then. You know, A's history was '87. We're up and coming. Um, you know, we got the Bass brothers. Uh, we lost out to the Twins. You know, who ended up winning the World Series that year. And so now we go to '88. Our attendance is growing. Uh, a very debatable thing. Should the fans vote? Should the fans vote? And, you know, so we're packing the stadium. So, yeah, our, our fans are ballot stuffing, you know, without a doubt. And that particular year, I, I had an injury the second week of the – or I think right about after the first month of the season, missed about six weeks, was was hitting terribly, you know, um, obviously. Well, all of a sudden it's like, hey, you're winning the van and, you know, the, the, the fan, fan balloting. I'm hitting 217, I think, at the time. <laughs> definitely not all-star numbers, but you know, what are you going to do? You, you know, I mean, I think it would have been, I don't know, look just as bad if I bow out of the thing, you know? Yeah. So I mean, I, I yeah. went there and, you know, part of it was in my feeling, Hey, people kind of saw what I did in 87, you know, had a decent year in 87, uh, started out poorly in, in 88 said, I'm going to the all-star game. If you want to debate something, yeah, let's debate whether you should have fan balloting. Um, my numbers are what they are. They're not good. They're not all-star numbers, but Hey, you, you know, went to the game and said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make the best of it. Um, and it was a situation that, you know, I really wish that every player could experience that because guys that you're trying to get hits off of, you know, the, the front line pitchers from every club, the, the top closers from every club are all now your teammates are all your battery mates now. And what a, what a cool feeling. And then not to mention, you know, the positional you know, perennial all-stars that, you know, you're playing with, you know, Ripken, you know, I mean, and all of a sudden you're there, you're one of the guys. And then to have the experience in the game, you know, like I did, you know, the one home run, sack fly, and then I'll take credit for the National League's run. I think Vince Coleman tried to steal. I threw the ball into center field, made an error, and the guy scored. So I was really in charge of all three runs. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Um, I got I got to go. I got to go into, I mean, the 89, 88, 89, 90 teams were unbelievable. You want to give us, you know, the feel of what the clubhouse was like is standing on the mound against you guys was not a whole lot of fun and uh, not a whole lot of fun at all, to be honest with you. 
<laughs> it was, yeah. Uh, the clubhouse was the clubhouse. I mean, you know, um, I will credit Larusa, Sandy Alderson. You know, they 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 put these teams together. Tony did a fantastic job in the sense that um, he would just say, "Look, for lack of better words." I really don't care what you guys do off the field. I mean, you know, you got to stay within the parameters of legality, you know, but he said, I'm concerned about what happened between the white lines. All right. My job is to put you guys out there and you guys have to perform between the white lines. So what I mean by that, yeah, did we have clubhouse issues? Absolutely. We had Conseco in his prime, you know, there, I mean, doing (laughs) what Conseco did, but you know, oh, you, you, you put that guy at, at the plate and you're pitching to him. It's like, I don't want to face this guy, you yeah. know? So Tony kept us all uh, in perspective between the white lines. Uh, a speech that he always gave in, in spring training uh, was pretty phenomenal because he would, you know, look through the younger guys and he would say, basically he was trying to find out how do we get that chip on your shoulder? How do we get you guys, you know, angry and, and determined to compete? every game for three years in a row. And, and we'd have our meeting, you know, in spring training, once the team was whittled down, he'd say, you younger guys, I don't worry about you guys. Cause I, I, I can just send you out, <laughs> you know? So you guys are going to bust your butt regardless and do what I say in the sense of bunts, hit and runs, you know, whatever. He says, you middle of the road guys, you know, you're, you're four or five, maybe six year guys. You guys are playing for arbitration. Let's say you hate the A's. You hate me. He said, I'm fine with that. He said, but if you play well, all right, your arbitration value is going to go up, you know, and you guys are looking for maybe to get a, that contract that's going to uh, secure you, you, you and your family. You know, I get that. And then he looks at the older guys, you know, like the, the Ricky Hendersons, the Dave Parkers, the Don Baylors, Lansford's, uh, Dave Stewart's, you know, and he goes, now you guys, you guys are, are my problem. You're like, what do you mean our problems? Well, you, you have money, you know, so it's not about money. You already have free agency. You've been arbitration eligible. He says, the only thing that I can use to motivate you is how many rings you got, if any. And that's what he used to leaving spring training to try to put that chip, you know, on everybody's shoulder for that entire year. And it was a good mix. You know, we had enough young guys that pushed the older guys. We had enough older guys that had the veteran leadership, the veteran experience to share to, to us younger guys. And it was on the field. Yeah, it was fun. Uh, lot of teams that we would go into and you know you could just see you know teams didn't want to play you you could just see pitchers didn't want to didn't want to pitch to you and I mean it was such an advantage well and then on top of it you got two you know giant guy well I guess you could say three you know with Conseco McGuire Dave Parker wasn't little Hindu Hindu wasn't hit little Lansford wasn't little you know then you throw a stew on the mound you know it's kind of you know big guy as well so yeah there was many teams that the minute that we walked out on the field, you know, inside you, you know, you're kind of known, yeah, we got this team beat, you know, and, and, and that was quite the advantage for those, that three-year window, you know, that, that, that we kept that team together. You guys were, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think we got, we, somebody got hit. We had a little brawl skirmish, nothing, nothing serious, <laughs> but I turned around and it was like McGuire behind me. I'm just going, uh-uh. not good. <laughs> you know, and it's kind of like I'm squared up with McGuire. I was like going, not good. This is no, not a good oh, That's one of those where you got to take those baby steps to get to the mound. You know, tiny, tiny little steps. So by the time you get there, everything's already, oh, man, I was almost there, you know? Yeah. Or I'm stuck at second base in some mud puddle or something. Yeah. 
doesn't work if you're at the Metrodome, though. Um, if you uh, you came up with a lot of those guys, though, and you had just exceptional talent in the minors, Luis Polonia, Conseco and Maguire, Tim Belcher, Steve Ontiveros, lots of names that we would remember from the 90s and even the 80s. And so what was it like coming up with those guys? Because if you look at the numbers at AA that guys like Maguire and Conseco were putting up, it was video game numbers in the minor leagues. Um you know, what was it like going through development with those guys and seeing, holy smokes, those guys are going to be legit superstars? You know, it, it was one of those things that the I always say this, like, you know, when you have it. All right. And you don't know what to do if you don't. And the group <laughs> that the A's had put together um, was the group that, you, you know, we, we just played. You know what I mean? Um, I don't know if we had different. Co- uh, coaches come in, you know, the uh, uh, scouts, I mean, uh, uh, traveling r- roving instructors would come in and mm-hmm. would try to keep everybody on the same page, but it was really about winning. And again, I can't emphasize this enough. I mean, we didn't have the internet. <laughs> you didn't have the computers. You didn't have, and we had baseball America. That was a week late, you know, that came right. out and said, Hey, and Seiko just hit a 500 foot home run in Huntsville. Well, you know, we had played a whole another week's worth of games by then. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was, uh, uh, the A's had that thing going. We had, uh, I'm going to say quality coaches in the, in the levels that we were playing at. And I think that the, I tip my hat to the people that they drafted because everybody was kind of on that same page. You know, I mean, I, I'm kind of going to use the word prima donna. Yeah. We had to save McGuire, but when it was game time, you know, they were just, they were teammates, you know, it's like, Hey, it's your turn to drive in a guy, you know, it's your turn to throw a guy out at second or something. And, and we were really taught uh, through, through the system about playing the game hard, playing the game, right. You know, getting guys over, getting guys in fundamental baseball, taking a bag when you can get it. And, and that was kind of the, the core of what the A's were about. And, and I'll throw a guy's name out there. Uh, Carl Keel, I think was our farm director back, back in the day. And, you know, he stressed to pretty much everybody. There, were, there was no one that was, you know, above, above the A's system or, or, or the A's plan of, of, of how to get, uh, one, how, how to, for you to get better and hopefully make it to the big league. But more importantly, how, how do we win in, in, in all our organizations? Yeah. Um, when you look outside today and you're, again, not far from me and you see what it looks like today and you've got uh, opening day postponed to Friday. What's it like as a Minnesota guy going to Oakland and, and living in Oakland or living in the Bay Area? Because I'm a Minnesota guy. Even to some extent, Greg is a Midwest guy. I'm sure you could have speak to the adjustment that that would be. But Oakland, I mean, it doesn't get much different weather-wise, especially. Well, if we're going to talk weather, it's absolutely gorgeous. I mean, yeah. the, the, the biggest thing I had to learn about going to, to, to the Bay Area was every morning I woke up and go, oh, crap, it's going to rain today. Because you had the sea breeze came in, you know. So every day I'm thinking, oh, you know, our game game's gonna be rained out. So we go to the field like for a one o'clock game. You know, you're taking BP at ten. It's cloudy, overcast. You got sleeves on and stuff. Ninety nine percent of the time at one o'clock, it's a blue sky and you can't find a cloud. <laughs> you know, so it was ab- actually beautiful weather to play in day games, night games. I liked they they, they were cooler. You know, they were kind of in that sixty degree range. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think we had in my whole career out there, you know, probably under 10 rainouts at, at, at Oakland. Um, so it was, it was really an, an ideal place to play. 
Um, you know, the difference from a guy coming from the Midwest, going out to the Bay Area, it's just the people, you know, the amount of people, um, uh, you know, traffic was, was, was terrible on, on the roads and, and people everywhere, but with people, with San Francisco being right across the Bay, tons of opportunity. What I mean by that, restaurants, arts, theater, plays, media, you know, we many times took limos to do uh, a TV interview in San Fran, you, you know, on a Sunday after a, after a day game. So it, it was good, but it was also for me, nothing against the Bay Area whatsoever. To me, it was nice to get back home, get a little mm-hmm. space, get a little peace of quiet, get a, you know, a little uh, uh, slowed down atmosphere. Yeah, for sure. For sure. How, how did, um, I mean, you know, I played with you for an hour and a half, I think. Um, <laughs> how did you, how did you fit into that clubhouse? What, I mean, you, you know, reasonably young, but you know, you got a good sense of humor. You're, you're, you're a good guy. You're a good clubhouse guy. Where did you fit in there? It's a great story because when, when, and I'll speak for me, and I'm probably going to speak for you on this too, because you weren't that far behind me or, uh, I mean, behind me coming up, but it, it was respect. You had to earn your spot on the, the kind of the clubhouse persona and, and, yeah. and, and bus and airplane. Yeah. Well, being a catcher, when you're catching all these guys and the way LaRusa did it, he tried to match up catches with pitchers. So regardless if there was a right-handed pitcher, if Stu's pitching, I'm catching him that day, even yeah. though, you know, you know, as a left-handed hitting catcher, he always wanted to match up the catch with the pitcher. So, um, I'll never forget this on, on, on the plane, you know, we had our, the rookies had to bring the bag, you, you know, with a couple beers in it, you know, for, you know, whatever. And I just remember as you had, as you started playing and, and put together uh, respectable, decent games, you know, the, uh, the, the core of the players are sitting in the back of the plane. The rookies had to sit in front of the rink, uh, you know, in front of the wings. And then all of a sudden, you know, they'd be like, hey, Starbucks, get back and we'll talk to you. You know, I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, the guy's kind of, you know, you want to be part of the team, right? So you go back there, have a cocktail or two, you know, and Carney Lancer ended up being, you know, kind of took him in his wing, you know, being still my best friend in baseball today. Um, you know, I'd kind of sit with him. And so we'd talk about game. You know, we talk shop. Hey, nice play. What about this? What about that? Hey, we're facing Clemens tomorrow. How are we going to do this? Blah, blah, blah. Well, once once kind of the, the baseball shop kind of got talked about and the veterans, you know, had a cocktail or two, all of a sudden they look over, you know, and kind of put you back in your place. Hey, what are you doing behind the wings? You know, get back up there. We're done with you. you know? So it was uh, in, in my era, in our era, it, it was an earned uh, ritual, you, you know, that if, if you became that uh, a, a guy, you know, you, you were that, that grinder, you know, you were the guy that, you know, as a catcher, I'm going to block your, your, your curveball in the dirt with a guy on third. I'm going to block Stu's forkball, you know, you, you know, and, and you, you earn that. So it's the next thing, you know, you, you're back there. You're, you're part of this group. You're, you're, you're part of the core of the team. And I think that's what every athlete, again, you know, Meyer, that that's what you inspired to be. You wanted to, 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 to be a, a key part that that's going to help your team win. What, what was your relationship with Ron Hassey like? Because it's at first you moved around a little bit, you know, a little bit of third base, a little bit of left field, not a whole lot. But eventually that playing time gap kind of shifted in your favor. Did you have a good relationship with him? I'd have to believe it was at least decent because you guys were together for four full seasons. Had a phenomenal relationship. I mean, we all knew our role. Hassey laughed. You know, he would look at me and say, look, whatever happens, don't get hurt because I can't catch six days in a row. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, but 
we had a, uh, and again, because the concept was all about winning. So we'd have our, our catchers meetings with our uh, pitching coach, Dave Duncan, to go over, you know, who's pitching for us and go, go over their hitters. And uh, we really relied on each other for that. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, I'm uh, catching and we're facing Milwaukee and geez, I gave up 16 hits. I mean, as, as a catcher, I take that personally, you know, and yeah, maybe the pitcher was off a little bit. Okay. Is there something I could have done not to give up 16 hits? So the next day at the uh, catches meeting, I go, Hassie, what did you see? What do you, you know? And, and it, there was honesty, you know, cause we'd go back and look at the tape and like, okay, I called inside the guy left it down the middle. Okay. I called outside the guy left it down the middle. Okay. In this situation, the guy was definitely looking off speed and you threw off speed. So that one's on you, but you would work together to try to analyze, um, what the uh, opponent's offense was sitting on, you know, what, what were they looking for on each particular pitcher? And I think the hardest thing was uh, when we played, you would play teams back to back, but we'd have four games in Oakland and turn around and let's say four, we play Minnesota four games in Oakland, then turn around and go to Minnesota playing four more at the Metrodome. Well, when you face someone, you know, eight times in let's say 12 days, um, you know, you get to games, you know, seven and eight, I have nothing left in, in, in my bag of tricks. You know, I can't, you know, so that's where a veteran uh, catcher, you know, we could uh, uh, sit down and talk and say, Hey, what do you think here? Hey, let's not make this game calling too complicated. Let's stay with the pitcher strength, go against the hitter's weakness and, and, and kind of see what happens. So yeah, it was a fantastic relationship. I think we all knew our role, meaning that I needed him a lot to learn from. And I think he needed some youth because he knew, you know, at the point of his career that he physically couldn't do that many days in a row. Makes All right. I got to ask one question about my, my favorite closer. How was Eckersley? <laughs> <laughs> you want to talk old school. I mean, man, this guy was, was, was old school, but he was so good. Um, you, you know, you could literally sit back there and almost close your eyes and he'd hit your glove. Um, again, uh, the era that I played, like keep bringing that up, but umpires were different. You know, when you had a veteran pitcher and your team was winning, which the A's were, I really felt sorry for some of the opposition that we faced because I mean, you'd get strike one on the outside corner. I'd go six inches off the plate, strike two. I'd go another six. So I'm literally 12 inches off the outside corner. Heck would hit you glove. Bam. You know, Ken Kaiser would nail you for strike three and there's <laughs> not a thing a thing that hitters could do. Um, but, you know, Eck, uh, Hall of Famer, nothing against it, but he was setting his ways. So we go to the uh, 88 World Series, and we I think we won 102 games that year. We had a clinch with three weeks to go, and uh, Tony calls me in his office. He says, hey, just want to let you know this is what we're going to do from here on out. I go, well, what do you mean? He says, well, Eck doesn't feel comfortable pitching to a rookie catcher. You know, so he says – Wow. When when we're winning the game and X coming in, Hass is going to come in. And that contradicts everything about, you know, the catcher's feel for the game. And I've called eight innings, you know, mm -hmm. not, not, not get that ninth inning. But um, Duncan, Tony, and, and I actually agree with this, you know, um, uh, pitchers in general, only jump in here if, if you want. You're going to execute your pitches way better if you feel way confident with the guy calling the pitches behind the plate. Yeah. So. I'm a young guy, and, and, and I put the same pitch at Haskell to call down. X like, oh, I don't know. Here we go. You know, and your chances of getting a good quality 
executed pitch, all right, isn't as good. So that's fast forward. Now we go to the game one of the 88 World Series. I catch Stu for eight innings. All right, we're winning four to three. Eck comes in, Hassey comes in, Gibson hits the home run. So people ask me all the time, what was it like when Gibson hit the home run? I said, I don't know. You got to call Hassey and ask him. <laughs> I did the research to make sure I didn't ask that question because I saw he entered the game in that ninth inning. So I, I'm glad I didn't ask that question because um, that would show yeah, that I wasn't doing my research. There's a lot. I mean, there is a lot when our, our, our backup guys, you know, Tackett, Bob Melvin yeah. would come in. I, I was comfortable with them because I knew that they were relying on their defense more than their offense. They were, you know, extremely intelligent. And I was fine with our starters because they had caught the game. So, I mean, I really didn't have a preference other than maybe a one or two guys out in left field or right field that, you know, I'd rather have a fast guy out there. But yeah. Um, you know, the catchers I had, the you know, I was lucky that they were all pretty solid in different aspects and um, interesting. Well, then as you fast forward the story and you, you'll appreciate this, you know, the baseball minds here. So now we go to 89. I catch Stu for game one against the Giants. We win. I catch Mike Moore for game two. We win. Then we have the earthquake. So we have 10, 12 days off. Then I catch Stu for game three. We win. Mike Moore for game four. We win. So now we go to 1990 in spring training. All of a sudden, it's like, hey, pitches, whatever Steiny calls, don't worry about it. This guy caught four wins you know, in the World Series. We're only talking about that, that, that's a year later. And all of a sudden, I'm a genius. <laughs> <laughs> it just kind of goes down to, you know, earning it or what you, for lack of better words, I'm just going to say, can put on your resume. You know, hey, we won the World Series. I caught all four games. And well, now the guy, you know, like I said, he's smarter than ever, you know. That's funny. You caught some pretty great pitchers in your day, too. I mean, we've talked about Stewart, but Bob Welch, Ron Darling, Scott Sanderson, Bobby Witt, um, just to name a few. What um, what level of pride do you take in the fact that they either were great when they were with you or you helped them become great? Well, I actually I, I, that I take a lot of pride in that. And that kind of got beat into me. And I'll tell you the story about that, because. Um, I originally was drafted as a third baseman, you know, learned how to catch in the minor leagues, I had two years of catching in double A the first year. I didn't catch at all because they had all the prospects ahead of me, but I played third, played first, DH, even played some outfield. The second year went back to double A, caught every game just about and got called up to the big league. So basically I'm up there with one year of catch of double A catching experience, but that year in double A, I hit like 330, 130 some RBI. So they brought me up for my back. So now let's fast forward. I don't know what year it was. It might've been year two of my career. And, and I had a decent day at the plate or something. And all of a sudden the equipment manager says, Hey, Tony wants to talk to you. I said, Oh, okay. Being a young guy, probably wants to say, Hey, nice job today. Way to go. Keep it up. You know, <laughs> Blah, blah. And then I walk into his office. He says, close the door. Ah, okay. He probably doesn't want people to come by and here and saying what a good a job I did <laughs> I sit down and he looks at me and he says if you ever call as crappy as a game as you did today you are going to be in the minor leagues so fast he says we got eight other guys to hit your number one job is to work with the pitches your number one job is to keep the pace of the game going the flow of the game and Ole will respond to this I know it and you know I went back to think about it yeah it was a bad game I mean the pitcher shake and shake and shake and we're not in sync the game took forever you know, even though I had, I don't know, two for four, three for four that that day. But it took a while in, in the big leagues to really 
believe and understand that a catcher's number one job is to relate to the pitchers, all the pitchers, you know, from the five starters that you had all, all the way into the bullpen. And there's some guys you got a pat on the butt. There's some guys you got a kick in the butt, you know, to get going. There's some guys that want to the next day behind the screen, go over every pitch that they threw. There's other guys. They don't want to talk about yesterday's game. And that's part of your job as, as a catcher to uh, get to know their personalities and understand what each one of those guys need so that the next time they step on the mound, they have the best chance to succeed. And if they're succeeding, that probably means your team is succeeding. And, and, and again, you know, vicious circle here going back to if everybody's succeeding, we're winning games. And that's what this is all about is, is trying to get as many W's as you can. And how, how fast or slow is that process? Um, it just takes time. Uh, you know, if, if you think you're going to read a book and, and, and watch uh, some tapes, you know, uh, and in and, and two weeks, do you think you're going to have it? No way. Mm-hmm. I mean, and this goes back to, uh, I think, what expediated the process or got me more comfortable game calling behind the plate was the meetings that we had with Hassey, the meetings that we had with our pitching coach, you know, after sometimes after every game uh, and definitely before the next game, we talk about what worked yesterday, what didn't, what could have you done differently. And um, as, as a catcher, you, you know, your, your, your mind, your brain is kind of like that computer. The more uh, situations that I've had pitching against Cal Ripken, you know, whether it's a guy on third, whether it's a guy on first, uh, bases loaded, whatever. I mean, Joe Carter is, is, is a great example. I mean, Joe Carter, nobody on, nobody out. He hits one way. Put a guy on third base, you get – he's going to swing at the first two pitches no matter what you throw. Now, mm-hmm. good luck trying to get that third pitch by him without him getting that guy in. Correct, Oli? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I've, I've seen him lay down a bunt with a runner on third and two outs. And it was I, – thankfully, I wasn't on the mound because it was a game ender. And I was yeah. just sitting there going – he did not just do that. I was like, there's no way I'm thinking that. No, no. And so, again, the more that, the more situations you have behind the plate with particular hitters and particular pitchers, the more confidence, the more experience, the more data that you have to say, okay, hey, in this situation, I know he's looking outside. We're going to pound him in, even though the book says it's not right to go in, but I know he's going to try to shoot that ball in the right field. And again, your pitcher has, you have to know your pitcher that he has the ability to get that ball inside in that particular situation. Can, I, before I let Oli back in, because I'm sorry I keep jumping all over you, but I don't want to get out of 89 before we talk about the day that the earthquake hit. Because So I read Jose Canseco's book when I was in college. I think I read it cover to cover in like seven hours because it was so gripping. Maybe not necessarily the best prose I've ever read, but a good book. And he talked about um, being out in the wild in his jersey because he had to just kind of take off from the stadium and from when everything kind of shook out, I guess, pun not intended, sorry, um, to the end of that, what was that like? Because I have to believe it was a harrowing experience for you and your young family and all that. It was, yeah. I, I mean, the emotions are all, all over the board on that. So first of all, we got beat by the Dodgers. All right. We feel we got something to prove. So bam, we're two and zero against the giants. All right. So now we go to candlestick, our professional, uh, mindset is, hey, let's go ahead and sweep these guys. Uh, let, let's let's be playing the way we are, so that we can get that ring, that coveted ring, you know, that every, every everybody wants. So now, uh, Hass is going to catch Welchy in Game Three, and so I'm sitting on the bench. You know, it's one of the few times you can sit back and actually, hey, I'm going to just just enjoy the pregame. You know, San Fran's first game. You know, introductions. They got a tremendous history of Hall of Famers in the Giants 
organization. Mm-hmm. I'm going to check all this out. All of a sudden we hear this noise, you know, and it, it sounded like an airplane go, going over a candlestick. And I go, I thought on the event, you can't have airplanes going, you know, and we look up and all of a sudden we saw the overhang there, you know, kind of doing like a crack, crack the whip thing. And at first I thought, well, that's an, an aluminum overhang, you know, so it did that about uh, for a second to two, maybe three seconds. And after that, then it was the actual just shake. And the whole stadium went silent. The lights went out, you know, and 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 also we hear the San Fran fans, you know, are like, "Hey, the baseball gods are with us." You know, we're gonna kick your guys' butt, you know. You know, and then we thought, honestly, we thought that at the stadium that once you get the power back on, you know, we'll play the game. And so we're kind of just milling around the dugout. Oh, hey, where were you? Well, that was a pretty bad earthquake. What do you think? Oh, it might have been a four. Might have been a five. Something like that. And it wasn't until a guy in the front row of Candlestick had a little TV with the coat hanger sticking out. Again, free cell phone, free everything with the coat hanger sticking out. And all of a sudden he's showing us that the Bay Bridge fell, that uh, uh, the Nimitz Freeway had had uh, collapsed, and that the Marina District was on fire. And, and Bobby Welch actually lived in the Marina District. So once we saw that, we're going, whoa, you know, this is way worse than what we thought then. Center field doors opened up. I bet 50 squad cars came in over their PA. Hey, the game's been canceled. Everybody leaving in, in, in an orderly fashion. Now, to, to get back to Oakland from San Fran, you normally take the Bay Bridge. Well, that's closed you know, because that section fell down. The next bridge is in San Mateo. That's a 13-mile bridge that goes over the water. That hadn't been inspected, so that shut. So we ended up going all the way down to San Jose and, and have to come back up. So when we left Candlestick um, – we were never in, you know, I'm going to say immediate danger. It wasn't like there was chunks of concrete falling on the player. There wasn't like we got to climb over, you know, broken down pillars or anything like that. But the clubhouse was dark. They gave you an actual garbage bag. They just said, hey, go to your locker, sweep the things out. Because, again, no one really knew structurally where, where anything was. So sweep your stuff into a bag and get on the bus. Now, some guys had driven, i.e., and Seiko, you know, you know, I'd driven over. So, yeah. So he, he grabs his personals, throws them in a garbage bag, hops into his, his, his Porsche at the time. He's going to drive home. Well, there was no gas. So that's what, yep. that's a picture. I think you see is literally him at a, at a gas station trying to get gas. And I remember we, I think we had four chartered buses, a couple for the players, a couple for family. And I remember going down the freeway and also we went up, went up and uh, exit ramp and they figured out, Oh, you can't go there. It's all closed. So they have four chartered buses backing down the entrance ramp to get back on the freeway. Long story short, it took us like four and a half hours to get from San Fran down to San Jose and get back up to uh, the Coliseum um, because of traffic and closures and and everything like that. Did you ever see the 30 for 30 on it? Because the things that stand out to me, there was a guy on a pole and I guess the pole was like waving back and forth and he was clinging for life. And then uh, there was the one guy on the bridge that got crushed down to like this and he still managed to survive. But first of all, did you ever see that? And, and what did you think? Yes, I did see that. Yeah. We did not know. And the reason that guy was up in the light tower is because they had these giant streamers up there. And mm-hmm. before the game, he was supposed to get those untangled. You know, so uh, when, when you have the, 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 the Al Michaels and here we are at the World Series, you know, they do the visual candlestick. It looks pretty. It's awesome. It's great. Let's get going. So that's why that guy was up there. We did not know that. Till, I don't know, a, a day or two after that he was up there swinging on, on, on the uh, light towers. Yeah, and the Nimitz Freeway was just horrific. 
I mean, a double-decker freeway, that pancake, to think anybody, you know, could make it out of that alive was, right. was just phenomenal. And, and that took us to, um, you know, the, the emotional conflict of, of the situation at, at the time because you had the humanitarian issue. I mean, millions and millions of dollars lost, lives lost uh you know uh 24 7 coverage of, of trying to pull the Nimitz freeway apart trying to get people that were trapped in there uh the marina district how many homes burned you know you had that aspect of it and i'm even going to say uh selfishly your professional side yep all right you don't get a chance to win the world series every year we lost in 88 here we are in 89 two and oh against the giants you know we like we got to finish this you know we you know so it was really uh, and an emotional tug of war. And, and I think kind of the best uh, synopsis of this, I think Bart Giamatti had said when they made the announcement mm. that finally we were going to play, he said, what better way to show America and the world that uh, athletic sports, regardless of what the particular sport was, can unify and unite a community that, you know, the Bay Area has this catastrophic earthquake, and yet we find a way to finish out this World Series. It, 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 so it was like a symbol of, of rebuilding, you know, a symbol that we're going to over, overcome this. And, and that was the, the, the gist of, of playing, you know, playing out the rest of the World Series. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah, you know what? You don't realize that when you're sitting there watching it on TV, what you guys are going through and, and had to go through. I know we talked to Jeff Brantley about it, and he was stuck in the tunnel walking out and said that it went completely dark and it was one of those stucco walls and he ended up shredding his hands because he was, you know, trying to hold on and figure out, trying to, trying to find a way out. And, uh, um, all right, lighten, lighten the, the question here. Um, <laughs> a couple of my, 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 my favorite aspects of playing obviously are, are the clubhouse, the conversations, the, uh, the, the camaraderie and I what best mound conversation you had. I'll tell you this one. Remember Eric Plunk? He was like yeah. a six, four, six, five guy back in the day. He was a 90 to 93 mile an hour guy, you know, kind of had a little bit of a 12 sixer um, Southern Cal guy had these big pop bottle glasses on, you know? And so, you know, we're catching Plunky in a game and, you know, I'm putting fastball, he's throwing breaking ball, I'm putting curveball down, he's throwing fastball and I'm jumping all around. I'm getting frustrated and, you know, it's hacking and, and you know, so, it didn't happen on the mound, but we get the guy out. So it, I, you know, I go to the bench. I said, Plunky, what is going on out there? I said, man, you missed like four signs. You know, when you're expecting 92, 93, and I'll, you know, you throw that, I mean, you know, or the other way, the curveball, now you're jumping up to catch a fastball. He goes, dude, this is what I got figured out. And I go, oh, this is going to be good. He says to me, straight face, he says, I think if you don't know what's coming, there's no way the hitter knows what's coming. <laughs> that is what his answer to me was. I mean, well, I, I had no response. I mean, what? A, I, I mean, I was like, well, it would help me out behind the plate if I at least knew what's coming. <laughs> that reminds me of uh, Dennis Rodman's book. He said he'd get a new phone number and he wouldn't let him tell him it because he thought if nobody else, if I didn't know my number, nobody else could know my phone number to crank call me or mess with me. So same, same vibes, if you ask me. Yeah. That's great. All right. Same, same line umpires. I mean, you're sitting there, you're sitting there for nine innings with some of the 
most interesting cast of people that I've been around. You, you can't turn around and have a conversation, but you can still have the conversation or even at the plate. What, you know, you don't you need to use an umpire's name if you don't want, but just give me something. Cause I was always jealous of the relationship that you hitters had. Cause if I look, um, I looked in wrong, I'm getting a ball. Yeah. Um, uh, 98%, 97% of the umpires that I worked with, we got along great. We had a working relationship and I'll give an example for that. Um, Tim McClellan was like six, six, you know, umpire. And as his career is progressing all along and now I'm a more established player, six, seven, seven, eight, nine year veteran. And he's behind the plate and he goes, Hey, Steiny, you know, can, can you work with me today? So what, what, what do you got going on? He says, well, the head of the umpire, they want me to change my stance. They think I'm missing too many pitches. So I'm going to try a different stance. Can you work with me on, Hey, just ball or strike? You know, so a pitch would come in, he would call it a ball. I'd throw it back. What do you think? I go, yeah, I'll, that, that's a ball. You know, and then there'd be another pitch he'd throw. He'd call it, call it a strike. I said, yeah, you know what? That can go either way. But my point is, you know, you know, you work with the guy and, and by being honest with them, all right, you develop their trust. And yeah. once you develop their, their trust, and again, 98% of the guys who got along great. Now you throw, and I'm not going to be afraid to say his name because I mean, he's the great, greatest umpire in the world, funniest guy ever, Ken Kaiser. All right, you, you know, behind the plate. And we're playing Chicago, and you know, we walk up there, or uh, uh, Frank Thomas walks up to the plate, you know, hey, Frank, how's it going? Frank, hey, Kaiser, good to see you. And Kaiser would go, hey, Frank, thanks a lot for signing those dozen bats and three dozen balls for my fundraiser that he had. Remember, he used to do that thing. And, and Frank, oh, guys, no problem whatsoever. I'd be, you know, happy to do it for us. I said, hey, can we play some ball? Yeah, okay. So we get in there. First pitch, only middle, 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 ball. <laughs> and I turn around. I turn around to Kai and say, hey, I know I'm not a Frank Towns, but I'll sign as much crap as you want. <laughs> Man, come on. That's got to be a strike. And everybody laughed. He's laughing. Frank's laughing. I'm laughing. But, I mean, yeah, that, that was kind of the stuff that, as a pitcher, you're focused on what you got to do. But as a catcher, we had to manipulate those guys. We had to work with those guys. You know, another Ken Kaiser story, uh, a young, younger player showed him up a little bit, you know, called it a strike, player turned around, stared at him, you know, next pitch, grounded out, and then stared Kaiser down, running back to, to the dugout. And Kaiser, like, he's hey, I'll get that SOB when he comes up next time. And I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. I got, you know, worried about the next hitter. Couple of things go by. This this kid comes down. He says, "Hey, when I tap you on the shoulder, I want you to get outside." All right. So it's zero zero count. I kind of sit up on the outside corner. I mean, he's beating on, on the thing. I mean, I'm I'm probably this far outside. I think before the ball ever left the pitcher's hand, ha! Strike one. <laughs> he ended up striking him out on three pitches. There wasn't one pitch that was in maybe a foot foot and a half of the strike zone. And Kaiser, he just sees it there. Take that, and I'll go back. <laughs> you had a you had to earn his respect. You know, and, and if you're a pitcher, don't show them up. And I know, you know, the pitchers that you just had, even though they missed one, yeah. you had to catch the ball and just turn around and get back on the rubber. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Kaiser, I know you... Kaiser didn't get me too much, but uh, McClellan. Yeah. <laughs> but you like yeah. Timmy? Uh, you, we, we got along after I got done better, but yeah. he didn't like this look. Yeah. You know, kind of like where, what part of the plate did that not hit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, go, yeah. go you ahead. Guys will, you guys will both appreciate this, though. I got home and I checked the mail and I had 
what felt like a baseball in a bag in the mailbox. And it was an autographed baseball of Marty Cordova, which somebody had sent me. So uh, former teammate of your guys. Now, before we close it out, though, with Twins talk for just a couple minutes, you got to talk to me about 1996. You hit 35 home runs after hitting 36 the previous three years combined. And everybody that I talked to, they said a lot about the way that the uh, stadium in Oakland was kind of changed. The, the, the layout of it changed due to um, some construction. What were you feeling that year? Well, uh, number one, if, if you go back and look at home runs to doubles, you know, that, 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 that ratio, and then you do go to 80 or 96, they built Mount Davis. Because yep. the yep. coming back, they built a five-story structure. And Ole will jump in on here, but everybody loved pitching at the Coliseum at night because gap to gap, there's no home runs being hit, you know, unless you're one of the big boys, you know, Bo Jackson, Conseco, McGuire, and even those guys weren't like 500 footers. But yeah. I mean, you had the yeah, average, you had like ball wasn't going. Now, daytime, I think it played fair. Yeah. Um, but now they built Mount Davis out there, and all of a sudden my doubles are down and my home runs are up. You know, because balls that used to one hop the fence or or whatever are not are now going out. Period. Two, um, call it a free agent year, call it whatever you want. You know how you get locked in. That was a year that I, man, I think I had one of my most solid. Well, evidently, you know, I just felt <laughs> really comfortable at the at the plate. Uh, two, Art Howe was the manager that year, and now that's his first year managing, and I think that's the most games that I ever played either. Cause yep. uh, you know, 145. We kept teasing, he kept running me out there, running me out there. And my teammates are going, what the hell are you trying to go for the Cal Ripken award? <laughs> you know, because <laughs> I mean, you know, we we're playing game after game, night game, day game, day game, night game. So it was a, it was a combination of things, but I do think the the, the biggest uh, change was, you know, the structure, you know, how they built that. And I think Bog said that about Fenway when they added, was it the press box? I think behind home plate at Fenway it changed how his balls didn't carry to the monster anymore. Balls that were used to uh, bouncing off the wall at Fenway were now being outs. Oh, I'm sure Oli was tore up about that. <laughs> yeah. Bugs yeah. wore me out. He wore everybody out. Yeah. Um, if we, if we got to drop Oli from the call here in a minute, that's fine. I just have, I have two more, but Oli, what do you got? No, brother, I, I got uh, – I'm doing uh, Ole Miss and Alabama on Sunday. So, we got uh, – I had a Zoom call at 10, had a Zoom call at noon. So, I got to jump off here real quick. But great seeing you. I'm going to shoot you an email, get your uh, get your contact, and let's keep up. But don't let Brandon run down the Minnesota road too much with you. I won't. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure. You're looking great. And uh, glad, glad you're still involved in the game. And ple- pleasure to see you again. Yep, great seeing you, Steiny. All right, take care, guys. Yep. Hey, Terry, I got to ask you, though. You go back to Minnesota. Um, TK, what are your TK stories? Because we had him on, let's see, probably about four, five, six episodes ago. We had Molitor on. Um, but TK is a man unto himself. He's, he's the only guest in history of this that 90s baseball pod that we called on a landline phone. So he's a very, very unique guy. Um, stories about TK, what do you got? Um, one of the most um, wittiest, uh, intelligent, uh, smart guys who keeps really all that into himself. I mean, 
you when when you have a serious conversation with TK, you know, regarding baseball, whether it was him being my manager, when I got into coaching, uh, he was still going down there. And every time he asked or he, he spoke or had a conversation with you, um, man, you really, really had to listen because there was so many underlying uh, uh, concepts, theories, questions, you know, that he was doing. So he was, I mean, he was just extremely sharp. I mean, um, it was fun because playing for La Russa, he let you know exactly where he stood, you know, good, bad, or different. All right. TK, on the other hand, kept a lot of that to himself. Like all of a sudden you walk into the game one day and you're not playing. You're like, well, what the heck? You know, and it was his choice as a manager. He had his reasons not to play it. But I will tell you a really funny TK story where we kind of, kind of, uh, I don't know, snowballed him a little bit. And that doesn't happen too much with TK. So mm -hmm. uh, Bob Tewksbury's pitching, Pat Mears uh, had broke his hand. Okay. And so he's out for like the last month, month and a half of the season. And Mearsy was, I mean, a, 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 a gritty uh, guy. I, I take that guy in a heartbeat, you know, in any one yep. of my team. So you want that guy out there. Well, Tooks is like sitting there. We're playing uh, Cleveland. And he's like, God, I feel bad. You know, it's our, our last series. And, and Mearsy's here. And he doesn't get to participate. He says, and Tooks goes, you know what? Let's have Mearsy call the game. I go, what? Yeah. He said, Mears is going to be sitting on the bench. Let's have him call the game. I said, well, Tooks, it's, it's, it's your game. You know what I mean? I don't have a problem with it, but yeah, I'm going to have Mears do it. So we bring Mears in. He said, Mears, you've been a rock solid guy. You're calling the game. And he was like, yeah, okay. So he sits on the end of the bench, you know, TK's on this side, Mears is on that side. So every pitch, I kind of got to look in and Mears, he's giving me, you know, a curveball, fastball, change up, you know, and he's calling the whole game. And we get through this, this whole game, game and, 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 and talking to Guardy later, it's about the fifth or sixth inning, you know, and all of a sudden TK is like, what the hell is going on here? What, what I mean, Sonny keeps looking in here. What, what's, what's going on? And, 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 Gard, and no one knew about it. Guardy, Scotty Alger, no one knew. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. So it's all said and done. We end up winning the game. Uh, Tewksbury shook off one time. Albert Bell just about hit the ball out of the ballpark. Oh, and Mirzi comes in and chews them out. You know, Mirzi gives it to him. Hey, I thought I'm calling this. You know, you're right, you're right, you're right. So it was getaway. I think it was the last game of the year. We're in the shower getaway and all of a sudden showering up. And, and we finally let TK know. And he goes, are you kidding me? And now Mirzi had already hopped on a plane to go. Toots was just about getting ready. Toots, is that true? Yeah, yeah. Mirzi called the whole game. I'll be damned, <laughs> you know. So it was, it was, it was really creative on Tootsbury's part to get Mears involved in the game. It was kind of fun because there's not too often, you know, that I don't even want to say pull the wool over TK's eyes. It wasn't pull right. the wool over where he wasn't 100. percent You know, yeah, I know what they're doing. You know, Mears on the other end calling pitches. You know, we finally yeah. took, took took all nine innings for him to figure that out. Yeah, and you probably had to enjoy catching Toots because he was another guy who could hit the mitt wherever he wanted to. Um, the Twins did uh, – they let A, A. Ray Adrianza manage the last game of 2019, manage the game. So um, not uncommon. Now, the last thing before I let you go is you set a career high in one statistical category in your last season. Do you know what stat that is? I do not. You had four triples. And you had triples. You had triples in every – year of your big league career except for 86 when you only played six games um that's remarkable i don't know i'm not 
I'm not here to ask you a talk about question like reporters like to do, but four triples that last year, that's incredible. That's as many home runs as you had. Um, it was, we had a lot of fun with that, um, <laughs> because Gardy, I believe was coaching third and there was a, I know there was one time for sure where hit a ball and obviously the ball has to take a carom or something like that. So I'm rounding second and you know, you cover, I mean, I'm not fast. All right. I tried to make my turns <laughs> as tight as I could. That makes me way less slow than really slow, yeah. you know, and I'm getting to third base and Gardy's like, you gotta go, you gotta go. And I'm just sitting there, and I pull up to third base and stop, and then I just go, no, 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 what do you mean? And Gardy's like, you could have made it. I said, no, Gardy, this is all I got. But <laughs> I did have, I think, it, I think it was that year in 96, I did have an inside-the-park home run. Oh, man. At Oakland, playing Seattle, I hit a ball to right field, off the scoreboard, Jay Buhner goes up to try to catch it off the wall, comes down, he had a bad ankle. His ankle locked up or he twisted his ankle or something. Junior's playing center, didn't come over to back up the play, all right? Joey Cora's got to run from second to right field, all right? And this is important, the right field, he picks the ball. I still have a slide at home to be safe. (laughs) I'm going to see if I can find some footage of that. Okay, Uh, before we let everybody go, we like to ask them some statistical questions. I'll make it real fast. Um, Do you know what pitcher you faced the most in your career? You also had the most hits and home runs against this guy. Oh, I'm going to say, I want, was, was it one of the lefties from yep. Anaheim? Nope. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Finley? Yep, it was Chuck Finley. You hit 354 against him with five homers and 83 plate appearances. And then uh, just beneath that, 65 plate appearances against Gubiza, who was on this show yeah. a couple months ago. So um, plenty of success against Finley, which, uh, you know, that's that's no joke. Chuck Finley could really chuck it. No, but the, the other thing you got to, you know, you got to remember too, um, with, with the, the uh, teams that we had in Oakland, you know, there had to be letdowns. You know what I mean? The, the, the tough righties that Finley's got to face, Conseco, McGuire, Lansford, Dave Anderson, Ricky Anderson, all mm-hmm. of a sudden you get to that sixth, seventh guy in the order to go, oh, okay, God, I got through those six guys kind of unscathed. And all of a sudden he relaxes a little bit. Um, yeah. Gubazo was a lot of fun. Great, great pitcher. And, you know, it's just one of those guys that for whatever reason, I saw the wall really well off him and I didn't crush him. I mean, I got, you know, through the hole here, bleeders there, and it got to the point where I'd get on first base and he'd give me this disgusted look off the mound. And literally I was just like, Gooby, I, I don't know. I don't know why this is happening, but I mean, <laughs> no one else was hitting him, you know, and, but for whatever reason, and on the flip side, you had other guys, Jeff Nelson, I think yep. I'm one for 362 off of, you know, <laughs> I mean, I couldn't get a hit off him. I couldn't pick up the ball good off him. And he's a good pitcher. He, good slider, know, I think. Yeah. Well, he was thrown down under. So he had a really, really good sinker at 90 to 92. And then he had that, that, that slider. And I guess wrong 99.9% of the time off him. That's amazing. I think uh, Gooby told us that Paul Molitor broke his leg. at the yeah. I might've been 96 or I don't know if it was 97, but. He was going to be traded right after that game and uh, broke his leg and the season was over and that's what it is. But, um, Hey, thank you so much for giving us this time. When, uh, can you confirm or deny that when you managed for Gardy, when he got thrown out, that there was a secret stash of Bud Light in his fridge, in his office that was blocked off by a promotional calendar? Because I swear I saw that. (laughs) I can neither confirm nor deny. Okay. 
Uh, yeah, there are a couple times I'd see something dropped into a cup too on the uh, <laughs> a, a can dropped into a cup on the desk there. So I was just wondering if maybe you were privy to that the games that you got to finish managing. Yes, he was a uh, like I said, he was a fun guy to, to learn from. Love and, that guy. And I was glad that I had that opportunity to manage. Um, <laughs> it's uh, it's a lot faster than. Yep what it appears sitting in your spot, sitting in my spot, sitting on the couch, or even being a player, yep. you know, you find out that it's, it's a lot, lot faster uh, decisions that you have to make and how far ahead you have to anticipate. Yeah. My favorite guardy memory is he let me uh, stay back after his press conference. And he said, Hey kid, you got to watch this. And he showed me Kent Murphy videos on YouTube, baseball instructionals of uh, the guy who <laughs> says never bunt hit dingers. So that was well, we a lot of fun. Those. That was a good day. So, um, Hey, thank you so much for taking time. Uh, for, for Greg Olson, who's signed off, he's got some work to do. Terry Steinbeck, again, thank you so much for taking the time to hop on that 90s baseball pod. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it, and good, and good luck with the podcast. You bet. We'll catch up with you real soon. For Terry Steinbeck, for Greg Olson, this is, again, Brandon Warren saying thank you so much for checking out that 90s baseball pod powered by Access Twins, and we'll catch you next week. Happy opening day. Peace.